Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. I got to start with the obvious, though. You got a cowboy hat on. You don't look like the typical tech executive. I don't think I'll ever be the typical tech executive. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice, you know, Zuckerberg's got his hoodie. Jobs had his mock turtleneck. I guess yeah. Yeah, cowboy hats, even though I'm not even close to any of those guys. But still, this is my thing. <laughs> you are also jacked. I mean, most of these tech guys are like Slender Man or something. Slender Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I definitely like working out. It's definitely something that has helped me stay a little bit more balanced in my life. But uh mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not the, the average tech executive in many ways. I wanted to talk about that, which is just individuality in the workplace. You know, a lot of folks that I talk to will say that there's pressure to behave a certain way, talk a certain way, even, even dress a certain way at work. And for as long as I've known you, you kind of don't listen to that at all. What's what's your, what are your thoughts on that kind of like individual expression at work? Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people, there are a lot of lines and boxes and kind of boundaries that get set. And you you would think in tech that there isn't that um, because it's a lot about innovation and changing norms. And um, I think that within tech though, there are those kind of lines that get drawn and it's, it's so liberating to just be able to break those and not listen to them and push against them. And I've found in my whole career and my experience that the more I've pushed back on those things, the more I've not allowed those things to restrict me, it's actually caused me to achieve greater success. And, you know, part of it becomes a personal brand that people know you by. um, But you also have to, you also have to like not let that be your conformity, right? Like I've changed even then. Like if you look across my social media profiles, you know, I've gone from like... I remember you were a Viking at one point. Yeah. I think you're I mean, still a Viking. Just I have a, a Viking now. shirt on, right? Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, you know, I just, I don't like anything to kind of keep me in the box. It helps me, whatever it may be, whether it's a cowboy hat, whether it's a man bun, you know, uh, yeah. whether it's a barbell, you know, those types of things have helped me one kind of achieve balance, but two, let me express myself independent of what other people think. And, and when I do that, I feel like it helps me come back into work and think about innovation and think about things from a different perspective. In fact, like we had a team meeting today uh, where the whole meeting was talking about uh, what is it that drives you to be here? Why are you in tech? Why are you in product? Um, and I pushed everyone to think about things outside of their job and work on those things. And if they're ex- happy and they're excited and they're doing innovation outside of their jobs, when they come back into their jobs, they'll have a new perspective. And it's really easy to think visionary in tech and then get stuck in your job of like all of these constraints of this, you know, our team doesn't have enough resources or we have these weird processes that we have to follow Um, And it's easy for you to kind of get stuck in your own boundaries, but the best way to break out of those boundaries, the best way to see how those boundaries are actually negotiable is to build stuff outside of your, outside of your normal job, whether it's 
spending time with family, whether it's going out in nature, photography, whatever it is that yeah. kind of fills you up and gives you that individuality will help you come back to your job and look at it from a new lens and a new perspective. So I so think you're, that, you, you're aware of those, that form. You're just like, no, I'm, I'm going to push against it. Yeah. I mean, it, I almost have a brand of doing that, you know, my personal brand, <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to accept that. Um, and you know, that's why I've gone from design to CPO um, yeah. just because I, I don't accept it. I, you know, what we're all focused on is making something great. And in order to do something great, you got to be able to think outside it. So I feel like early in my career, my whole game was figuring out like what the company wanted from me. They're like, okay, wh- I'm like, what kind of guy do they want me to be so that I can get promoted real, real quick? And as I've matured in my career, I've learned to do the opposite, which it sounds like what you've done intuitively, which is figure out who I am and show up as that person. Then I feel a whole lot better. Then I end up performing a lot more. Yeah. Going a lot further. What do you think about that? No, I mean, I think that's, that is the answer. That's the ticket. It's easy to try to conform to business objectives um, and try to conform to cultures. And, And I think like, you do have to accept some portions of the company culture. Otherwise, it's just not a good fit, right? And you shouldn't be there. Like, you can't be 100% outsider. Right. You can't be. Exactly. The, the, <laughs> you know, the system can't reject you. You know, the, organiz- the organism mm. can't like wholly spit you out, you know. But um, do you think you're like 70 30 or what do you think the ratio is? Uh, I think it depends on the company. Like, yeah. I think probably 70, 30 is like, you know, when I was at Amazon, it was like maybe 50, 50, like it was tough. It was tough. I, you know, I remember sitting through some of the Amazon principal trainings and there were certain things I really liked and certain things where I was like, man, I don't know if this is me. I don't know if I can do this. And so that was tough. But, um, you know, at Homey, it's definitely, I veer between 2080, 90, 10, um, it just depends on, you know, what we're talking about, but for the most part, 20%, 30% is the company and then 70% is you showing up authentically. Is that the numbers? I would actually flip it. I'd say like, there's, okay. there's, there's part of me that's 30% or 20% of me that is maybe outside of what the company value is, but like the 80% or the seven for me, it's like probably is overlapping with what the company wants. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like that's one of the things that people struggle with a lot. I, I think it's hard as well. It's just when you interview, when you're looking for a place to work, like how do you find that company that's going to have that 70, 80% overlap with, with, you know, who you are and what value you're going to provide? How do you, how have you been able to find places that are not, you know, 30%, but are 70%? Yeah. I mean, it, it's really tough, especially, especially in this climate, you know, with, with layoffs and those types of things like it's really easy to get while you're interviewing to kind of get fear-based and and really be willing to reject everything that you are you know and say like i am the company person you know it doesn't matter i'll be whatever you want me to be just give me a job and yeah and i think that that's it's tough but it's a mistake because you know people I think the number one thing people catch on to 
really quickly in an interview is your authenticity. Mm-hmm. If they don't feel that authenticity right from the start, there's you're starting on, you know, a misstep. You're you're not starting on common ground and and so when people see that authenticity and they feel that from you and they see that you might be a little bit different, they begin to make connect the dots of like, oh, this is how this person connects with our values. But if they don't feel that authenticity, they don't even try to make make the connection between the values. And so I think it's just starting right off from the bat of like, this is who I am. And it may or may not work for you, but this is who I am. I think that people will try and find a spot for you. And we've, you know, at Homey, we've interviewed folks on the design side that, you know, frankly just said, I'm not very strong at the visual side, but I really love, you know, user experience. And just them coming right out and saying that endeared me to them way more than someone who would try to cover up that weakness. And I've been like constantly searching for it. Well, how could we make this work? So I think like really that authenticity, you have to be brave enough while you're interviewing to be yourself, to bring that authenticity, not be scared that it, it, you know, you're not going to fit the company culture, but believe in that authenticity, believe in that, that unique you. And if you do that, I think it'll, it'll start you on common ground with people. Do you feel like the opposite is true too? Like if you show up to that interview and you're being yourself and the company's not a good fit, they'll let you know pretty quick. Totally. And, and you, that's what you want, right. That's what you want, right? Like nothing would be worse it, I think it'd be worse to be in a company that you don't feel like you fit. You're trying to change who you are. And yeah. so you're having this constant internal battle, even though you might need the job, you need the money. Um, you know, it's, I don't know if the stress is worth it to go through that. I've been in that situation where I immediately knew this was not the place for me. And it was a constant battle and a constant struggle. And I didn't feel like I grew as a person. I felt like I stalled in my growth Um, and you know, it's, it's a hard, you know, again, when we talk about reality of like, people are struggling, you know, if you're out of work, like got laid off, they just need a job to, you just need a job. I would suggest if that's the case, find contracting gigs as much as you can, because, you know, if you need to make the bills, you you know, you need to pay the bills and make, need to make ends meet. It's easier to contract and not be a part of the company culture than it is to, you know, go in full time. So you talk a lot about the importance of company culture and, and how you fit into that culture. How is culture changed with COVID? I mean, it seems like everything's a video chat now. Is there, do you still have a sense of company culture? Like what's, what's the landscape like now? Yeah, it's funny. Cause I think typically we think of culture as like slogans on a wall and you know, like, uh, murals and these types of things and like the feel of the office. And like, I think those things definitely contribute to that, but we've seen that really company culture is about shared values between people. That's really what it comes down to is if we share these values and they have to be consistently communicated, it's, it's one thing to, you know, have a set of values that are never addressed and, if you don't, if you don't constantly address them, it's hard to build value. It's hard to build, I mean, not value, but hard to build culture. And so 
you know, it's one thing to have the values, it's another thing to constantly communicate them. And then also point out, this is why we're making this decision because this is our value. And that really, I think, generates the most company culture. And you start to realize that all these other things were ancillary to making decisions based on a set of values. You lead product at Homey, and it seems like one of Homey's values is that authenticity piece that you talked about. I know Johnny Hanna is the CEO, and he posts a lot about mental health and just keeping your mental performance up. It seems like that's such a, a timely message, especially now when you know folks their mental health is is under attack with you know being indoors all the time and isolated. What do you think about mental health in in the workplace? You know, Johnny is an amazing individual. Um, we had a we had an executive offsite up in Park City, uh, and I was feeling a lot of angst. I felt there was a lot we wanted to achieve. Uh, there was a lot of things we needed to change in the product, and I started to feel a tremendous amount of angst about getting those things done. And Johnny offered to take me to the airport instead of taking an Uber. And so we drove to the airport and we got there a little bit early. And so he just pulled over and we chatted for a little while. And I was kind of telling him about this angst that like, man, I feel all this pressure. I really want to do it. I feel like we have the team, but like, man, it's, it's just, this is a big ask. And I don't know if we have enough time. And, and uh, he slowed everything down for me. And he said two things. Uh, one he said, I, you know, I can see this like angst in you. It looks like this like cage tiger. And he's like, I can see, I can see it. Right. And he acknowledged it. That was the first thing. He just was willing to acknowledge it and saw what it was. And then he did something that just blew my mind that like I'd never thought about before. It's so simple, but at the same time profound. He was like, I want you to take that cage tiger and I want you to unleash it on your home life and your family, mm -hmm. and your relationships. I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, like, not okay, like, that sounds dumb or weird. It was like, I never, I would never have expected him to say that. I was expecting him to say, like, you know, plow it into something, you know, uh, productive at work, or plow it into this goal, or this value, or whatever. And he said, no, plow it into your family. And mm -hmm. that was shocking to me because what he talked about after that was about how when we are working with our significant other, the, the, the power that exists of two people working together towards a goal united, he said, I've never seen a power stronger than that ever. And mm -hmm. it was it was such a eye-opening thought. And so I did that for the next week. I stopped worrying about work. I stopped, I, you know, as soon as work was done, I set things down. I went home or, you know, I went, I, I say I went home. I'm in this outdoor office that I built outside of my house. But I, I so I walked across the driveway, <laughs> went home. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and I just let go of everything else and really focused on my family, my relationships. And the amount of tension I felt dramatically went down. And it was something about, you know, coming into work, into my little office and focusing, giving all the effort I have there and then letting go and going back and focusing on my family. 
mm-hmm. that and just like things that I enjoyed doing, my mental health changed. That that caged up tiger disappeared. I, that angst mm-hmm. that I was feeling, that anxiety I was feeling about achieving our goals, it went away. And the funny thing is, is I started talking to my wife about what we wanted to achieve and how we wanted to achieve it. And, you know, just talking it through with her and her understanding that somehow made the angst go away. And so I think that there's something there in terms of like all that anxiety being pent up into one thing. And if you can take that and kind of refocus that energy into your life outside of work again, and then bring it back to work. So you come back with fresh eyes. I don't totally fully understand it, but it has been working for me. That's really cool. When you first said unleash the tiger on your family, I had a different <laughs> picture in my head. This but, biking going crazy. But what, but what you're saying sounds a lot more reasonable. No, I think there's something to that though, man. I, what I was picking up from that was, you know, your personal life and your work life being connected. Yeah. You know, we like to think like, oh, I go to work and then I get home and I turn it off and I'm at home. And then when I get into the office, I turn whatever was at home off. And the reality is for a lot of us, it's, it's blurry. It's, you know, it's mixed. What, what happens at work affects us at home and what happens at home affects us at work. And I think now maybe more than ever, when going to work, like you said, means going to the backyard or for a lot of people going into their bedroom and turning on the computer. Right. And that's kind of the ironic part of this, right? Is that I said, go to work or go home but really I'm at home and I'm at work. It's like, Mm. even though they're separated by like literally like 10 feet, (laughs) I still have this like general separation. A wall between them. Right. And I don't think that that is healthy. And, you know, it, I think back to like, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. I think back to like, you can can work on personal stuff and then that's going to help with the work situation. Right. Well, and I think back like to the 1800s where like families were working together on farms and like united towards a single purpose. And then slowly through the industrial age and the information age, there becomes this separation, right? Where, you know, people are working outside the home, they come back to the home and it's this disunity. And now COVID is kind of forcing us to figure out how to integrate our lives even more. And so one of the things I've actually loved, and again, it, like I want to underscore how interesting that is that a CEO, instead of telling me to, you know, take that angst and plow it back in the company, he's saying, you know, redirect that energy towards your family. So now it's, it's funny because I have conversations with my, with my two oldest sons about what we should do, what strategy should we pick? What, how should we do this? You know, wow. and so they're, they're integrated into it and they're checking the, you know, the homey app and telling me how to make it better. And, and so, it's this, it's this, you know, you a limit on the hours though, Chris, right? I mean, at a certain point is child labor. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, son, those designs, you gotta, you need to move this button. That CTA is terrible. These are due on Monday. You got to wrap it up quick. <laughs> we we got a dev, we got a sprint cycle that's coming up. You need to be ready. Yeah, I know. But, uh, it, it definitely helps. Right. And, and I think it also helps that my kids understand a little bit now why, sometimes I come in stressed, you know, they, they have an understanding. So I've also noticed like in those moments, uh, my oldest son has kind of stepped up and said, Hey dad, I know you're worried about this. I'm going to take care of this for you. And so he's, he's more willing to do things around the house because he sees that 
and that difference and understands what's going on. He understands the purpose behind it. Right. And so it's an interesting, it's really an interesting culture at Homey. Uh, it is very, very much come to work, focus, get things done, go back to your personal life and let your personal life uh, thrive. And that'll help your company thrive. And I think that's really what a lot of people talk about and feel that drives uh, the the loyalty to the company and the brand within within the homey culture. Yeah, it seems so rare to hear a CEO talking about focusing on your family. I mean, you know, I think the typical is work, 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 and work faster and harder. Right. Maybe maybe read a book to your kids, but like go back to work <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I read- my email a second ago. You know, like yeah. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, and it seems like personal life, you know, has such a big impact on, on the work. I feel like the the mental fitness that Johnny talks about is is like for me analogy is like an operating system or something. Like that's how you come into everything. That's how you come into life. That's how you come into work. And I, he was he was comparing it to physical fitness, where it's something you can improve and, and work out. You can build muscle around it, and. Uh, I think that's such an interesting way of looking at mental health that, you know, is, I, I haven't heard very often. Um, I think a lot of folks feel like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm upset and I just need to wait for me to not, not be upset anymore. Or, you know, I, I'm in a low period. I hope this leaves soon. Maybe if I wake up tomorrow, it'll be better. Like people don't, people feel like they're kind of powerless to it. But it, what I hear from you and what I hear from Johnny is actually, no, there's something you can do about it. And, if you do that, you'll show up in life better and you'll show up at work better. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've been working on a lot is, uh, is my inner dialogue. Um, you know, I went through a really rough time where I had some, you know, my brother passed away. I had two of my best friends died. Um, and you know, I, I went through a work situation that was super tough. I had, you know, voices, uh, that were kind of telling me things that, against my kind of internal voice that was, that had always told me I was doing great things and I was capable of a lot. And I started externally hearing things that made me question that. And, um, it took a long time for me to, uh, get out of those thoughts. It's it's really easy to slowly spiral in your, your kind of inner voice and keep telling yourself negative things to the point where it gets really rough. And, you know, I, I went through a period of time where, I had a hard time hearing my own positive internal voice. Uh, and, you know, I've, I kind of posted a video recently to LinkedIn um, about kind of how I overcame that. And part of it was just doing things that I loved and doing it because I loved it. And, you know, I'm a, like, I don't know, like seventh generation home builder, like all through, all through generations, you know, my family has built homes and, and uh, so I grew up, working on homes, building them. Um, and so when we, we bought a piece of property out here, kind of 45 minutes outside of Seattle and, um, I, you know, I got three acres and, uh, I just started building things. Um, I was working at Redfin. I, I left there, uh, was kind of in between looking for a new thing, um, and looking for a startup, but I, I started to kind of get burnt out on tech and, um, instead of focusing on tech and trying to improve my career and like my standing and, 
you know, trying to like network and tell her, you know, I just was like, I don't even want to do any of that. All I want to do is build stuff. So I started building. I have like four mm-hmm. buildings that I built on my wow. property within five months. And I I had this vision of what I wanted to build, which was this like building that was had a perfectly vaulted ceiling that didn't, you know, in order to get a vaulted ceiling, typically you got to have a beam going across the top so that the, the rafters can sit on the beam and then the beam has to be supported by posts. And what that does is those posts inter- interfere with the view. So you can't have like this, you know, the perfect house shape outline of a window. And I was trying to figure out how can you, and you can do it with steel. You can totally do it with steel and build a steel frame and that'll totally work. But I was like, you got to be able to do it with wood. There's got to be a way. Cause I don't know how to weld and I didn't want to figure it out. And so I, I built, building one, which was a prototype. I built building two, which was another version of it. And then I got to the third. very software-esque, by the way. Oh, totally. It totally is. I took all the principles of, you know. (laughs) It's a design problem. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and so then the third one I finally built, I figured out how to do it. And, you know, before I did it, I talked to a couple of friends who are in construction. They're like, dude, that thing's going to fall down. There's no way. Like, there's no way it's going to support weight. (laughs) I was like, uh, I hope it does. And so anyway, so I built it. And uh, I remember the first moment I needed to get on top of the on top of the roof of it. And um, I was so nervous. It was like, this thing is going to collapse and I'm going to die. And I got up and it was so solid. And then we went through a winter of snow and it was still solid. And yeah. so, so anyways, it was doing that um, really like refilled my own tank. And it started, I started to build a new identity of myself, right? Like where I had my inner voice became something different than what I had got, you know, trained in back into of this negative one in tech. I now was like telling myself, I can do things like this. I can build things. I can be innovative. You know, I, I can have a vision. I can make beautiful things. And as I kept mm-hmm. building these things and doing it, the voice started getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where then um, I just like when I got back into tech, uh, that voice had been strengthened, had been fortified. I had buildings, you know, I had these things I could look at every single day as a reminder to myself of, hey, I am innovative. I do build beautiful things. I am good at these types of stuff. So these types of things. Feels like momentum, man. I know, like that's been my experience as well. You can keep things moving in a positive direction, and and stuff starts to build. But it, it, the opposite is true too. Like stuff can start sliding, and then it starts really rolling backwards if you're not, you know, keeping an eye on it. Totally. I, I, I'm wondering too about just physical, you know, doing something physical and that affecting your mental game. You know, you're obviously it's physically intense to build build a house. And I know you're also a CrossFitter. You're not somebody who's you know foreign to to physical activity. Do you feel like that has an impact on your mental game? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing about a physical activity is it forces you to be present. It, you know, you've got the thing that you're working with, whether it's material or whether it's a barbell. Um, you've got something that's that's forcing you to be in the moment because you've got to focus on this thing. And so all those negative thoughts, all the like you know, self-talk that's happening goes out the door because you're focused Mm -hmm. on this thing. And then you perform the action 
And typically, whether it's building or whether it's, you know, using a barbell, typically these physical things tend to be repetitive and you do it over and over and over. And, you know, I, I love this phrase. There's a book called uh, Chop Wood or Chop, yeah, Chop Wood, Carry Water, where it's just, it's do the simple things, do the simple things, chop wood, carry water. And it simplifies your routine, simplifies um, and gets you into this mode where you're not thinking so much about all these problems and getting into these things. You're you're gripping, you know, the axe to chop wood. You're gripping the uh, handles of the bucket to carry water. You're you're thinking about balancing so that the you know the water doesn't spill out of the bucket. And all those things are kind of pulling you into the present, so that these past experiences are not dragging you down anymore. It's you're a new being. You're in this moment and I think that's the cool thing about physical activities is, you know, and that's, that's really why I do, you know, I'm, I'm more partial in CrossFit to Olympic lifting. I love Olympic lifting because it's this like intense moment that you have to, you know, you have to kind of combine technique with power and like, you've got to be in the moment. If you're out of the moment, you're going to miss the lift. And like missing is like millimeters or centimeters difference between one lift and the other. And so you really got to be focused in the present and, you know, the consequences of not being so are, you know, they're pretty big. You're going to drop a lot of weight. And so I think that that really has trained my brain to when things are hard, when, when it comes down on the line, you know, to do the right thing or to, you know, I just stick in the moment. I don't need to think about it. I'm just going to stay in the moment. I'm going to do something physical and, and, keep in the moment. So it's funny because I have a lot of things I play with on my desk that help me help remind me that, okay, stay in the moment, stay in the moment, stay in the moment. I think there's a lot of times, especially as a product leader where, you know, people are asking for advice or are trying to, you're trying to decide on priority. And there's a lot of intensity in that moment to make the right decision. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's not clear what to choose. Uh, and so it's easy to kind of start your mind starts wandering, but if you have something tangible to kind of hold on to, that's helped me stay in the moment, stay consistent. And usually when you go into the moment, a spontaneous idea will come up. And that typically is the idea that will help drive things forward. That's interesting. That that seems counter to like what people would typically admit. They're like, no, no, no. I pull out the spreadsheet. I look at the pros and cons and like I've evaluated 36 different options and I I can guarantee you with data that this is the right decision. And you're saying, actually, there's a lot of decisions that are important that I have to rely on. You know, I don't know what you want to call it, intuition or like, uh, you know, just a, a, a sense of this is the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex algorithm, right? It really, mm. you know, it is, it is, you do want to look at spreadsheet. You, you are gathering data, but you know, there's just data that, that we as humans gather that we quite haven't quite figured out how to, you know, replicate in AI, which is fine. we'll eventually, I think we'll figure most of it out, but you know, call it intuition, call it um, gut sense. I think that there's just, there's a lot of things that as a leader, you're, you're evaluating that you may not realize go into it. Like, you know, the market conditions, um, you know, the, the company culture, the, you know, what's the temperature in the room for this type of thing? Who's, who am I talking to? Um, how should I deliver this? You know, 
who else is in the meeting. You know, there's so many dynamics to it. But then also it just really comes back to, for me, you know, all that stuff doesn't really matter. What really comes down to for me is what is the customer? What do they care about? What are they, what are they looking for? And to me, you know, innovation and insight really revolves around talking to those customers and understanding what they're doing. And at the end of the day, like, I think that has to weigh heavier, heavier in your algorithm than anything else. Uh, innovation will get stifled the more you let anything else, all these other factors, you know, get in the way of those things. But, you know, mm-hmm. data, data is just an extrapolation of what, is happening, what customers are doing, what value you've provided in the past. But it, again, it's it's based in the past. And sometimes when you're innovating, you know, the past is informative, but it is not definitive. And so you have to definitely draw on that, but you really got to get directional feedback from users, from customers, uh, hearing what they're doing, seeing what they're doing, staying on top of what the market's doing. And it's, a, you know, humans are complex. We're, we can, we can, absorb a complex and an an amazing amount of data and make decisions based on our experience and our, our expertise uh, that, you know, we have not figured out how to replicate. And I think that's, that's the beautiful thing of, of what we do in product is it's so creative and, and so innovative. And I think that's what draws people to this profession is, is the ability and, like building the ability to do that and having the capacity and the space and the trust to do those things. I think I'm remembering something that stuck with me that you said around data and how, if you really want to innovate, you need to be careful with letting data decide the direction because data is always historical. It's not going to tell you the future. It's going to tell you what's already happened. Yeah. And, a lot of times when, you know, people use data to be safe, you know, they, they want to say, you know, well, what data did you use to make that decision? Well, you know, sometimes there is no data, especially when you're innovating, you know, like the three things that people always, always look for are, uh, has someone with authority said that you should do it this way? Um, has anyone else tried to do it this way? And what data do we have to support what we're going to do? And by nature, all three of those things are historical. Now, the interesting thing is you can kind of hack that. And I've done this in the past where I've said, okay, like, you know, if you're in an organization that's very data centric and very data driven, I've learned that if you get two of those things, whether it's, it's data or someone else that has done it or data and an authoritative person said to do it this way, typically you can get it through and, and you can build credibility and build trust in your decision-making but eventually that fails, right? Like eventually you've got to build things that you don't have data about, that you that no one has ever done, that no authority figure knew to even say that this would work. And in those times, you really have to have directional feedback from users. You've got to be talking to people. There may be data that's similar, that's interesting, but it's really about trying to find these anomalies, these insights when you're talking to somebody that's like, oh, wait, wait, that's interesting. You said that you do this, but typically you end up doing this. Well, what's the gap there? Why is that happening? You know, it's it's really mm-hmm. digging into these anomalies that you're starting to see. And and I would say like that's the number one thing I would tell any product person ever to to really if you really want to be great at product, pay attention to anomalies. 
like there are so many anomalies that you skip over that you just kind of accept as a status quo. And I love one of, one of the uh, values at Homie is the status ain't quo. And I love that. Like that's, it's, it's basically not accepting what things are just because they are that way. And so paying attention to anomalies, especially when you're talking to your users, those are the guideposts. Those are the kind of hints, you know, that are like, hey, do something about me. And then kind of figuring out, okay, what do we do based on that? Is that is this a shared anomaly across multiple users? How do we know whether that's shared? Can we talk to more people and see if this is a common anomaly? And as you what start would be an example that, of an anomaly. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, this is a bad example, and this isn't a product example, but this is one I always think of is like you're driving down the road and um and suddenly like you go to turn the wheel, but your, your tires don't turn. Right. Like, and, and, and sometimes people are like, Oh, there's, that was a flaw, you know, or something weird happened. I need, you know, and then they would ignore it and keep going on. Um, it's tough for me to on my feet, think of anomaly, but, but that's the one I always think of because, um, you know, this is actually based on some philosophy. Um, and I'll, I'll send you a link to the book, um, that, that this is based on, but it's, it's, Rich, I think it's Robert Dreyfus is is the philosopher. He's out of Stanford. Um, he and I, you know, I was a philosophy major in college. Um, he talks a lot about entrepreneurship and that how we become great entrepreneurs is that we we have these common things that we do every day, and then suddenly we trip over this anomaly that stands out to us. And it's the entrepreneurs who who hold on to that anomaly and are like, "Whoa, what was that? Why does that happen?" And then they toy with it, toy with it, toy with it until eventually they find a solution to it. And that becomes, you know, a a big thing. I think if you look at any product, any great product, there's some anomaly that someone came across and, you know, we could, we could dissect products if you wanted to think about that. But what was coming up for me, and I'm wondering if this fits the framework that you're talking about, you know, Tim Ferriss is really big on this idea of, of hacking learning and, you know, he, he, he wants to figure out how you can learn very, very quickly. And the first thing that he does is goes and finds the guys that he calls the anomalies, the people that have taken a totally different route to learning a language or a sport or chess. And those are the guys that he learns from. He doesn't, you know, whatever the typical path is for, let's say, learning a language is going to school for four years, taking college courses, reading textbooks. He goes, well, no, I want to learn it in two months. So obviously I'm not going to be able to take the path that everyone else has taken. I need to find the guys that have learned it very, very rapidly and see what they've done differently. And those people are always anomalies. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a good example of, of someone um, finding another person that has done something interesting. And then he kind of, he takes it, tries to learn principles from it and then scales on top of that. I think that's, that's a good example of it. Um, I think like another example is, um, you know, again, being kind of objective and more broad is you, you come across data that, for example, you had this expectation that users were doing X, Y, Z thing. And, um, suddenly you look at the data and they aren't doing that thing. And this was like something that you anticipated them to do. And, and it's like, whoa, wait, wait, why are people not doing this? And as you dig in, there's an there's a reason why they're not doing that thing. 
and it's it's logical, but at the same time, it's not the ideal scenario that you would have expected to happen. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, product people, designers will look at that and then just try to like build upon the existing path instead of saying, hold on a second. Like, why is this happening? This should not be happening. This is weird. And this should this should be the path. And a lot of times there's all sorts of resistance to, to the ideal path. And sometimes it's internal company culture. Sometimes it's tech debt. Sometimes it's just like product debt where, well, we've just always done it this way. And, it, and then when you try to push on, well, actually, don't you think it should be this way? It's like, yeah, but, you know, it's working. And, you know, kind of like if it's if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, and those are the anomalies, I think, have the opportunity for you to create new new entire models around new ideas that, you know, everyone's trying to figure out how do we innovate within our within our existing framework? Well, look for those anomalies. You'll find them. They're not hard to find. It's more mm-hmm. just not accepting them, holding on to them and trying to figure out how to improve them. Yeah, I feel like data has become the, almost a currency in a lot of organizations. And it, and it seems like people use that to wield influence. Like almost every product manager or designer or engineer that I talk to, the number one thing they ask is, how do I become more influential? How do I have a bigger influence on the product? Like everybody wants to have a bigger influence than they're having on the product that they're building. And the number one way that I hear folks going after that is data. They want to have data. And and I see kind of three groups of people with, with data. And I'm curious if this model fits for you too. I see one group who already knows what they want to do, but they want some influential currency to get that idea through. And so they find the data that affirms what they believe, which you talked about a little bit where it's like, Oh no, you need to actually look at the outliers, the folks that aren't fitting with your hypothesis. I see folks, so that's one category. I see a second category where people uh, don't want to step out on their own idea. They want they want to have something to blame if it's a bad idea. And so they try and get data to tell them what to do. They try and get uh, some what somebody else has done or they try and extrapolate some argument based on, on what they're seeing in the data that then they can point to if it fails and say, well, I didn't have this idea. I just, this was an idea bore out of the data. Right. This wasn't my idea. You right. can't blame me for it. And then I see a third group, which is, I think, where 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 people should be, which is, it's more nuanced. You're balancing those things. There's a, there's a, there's an element of hypothesis that you have as an individual on, on what's going to make this successful, what's going to add value, what's going to make something great. And then there's data to suggest that this hypothesis is true. And it's a balance of both of those things, not the extreme of just the data or just the, the hypothesis that's confirmed by uh, the data that you're able to, to shape out. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you nailed all three of them. I mean, one of the things I always think about when when people come to me and say, "Well, what data do you have to to say that this is a thing?" It's like there's suddenly there's a lack of trust, right? They they obviously don't trust me as as a product leader. Um, and there's a lot of cultures that are very data driven, and I feel like those cultures are really, you know, they don't want to admit it, but they're very top down. They 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 have 
this data structure where they want to be able to make the decision and they don't feel comfortable giving people, uh, you know, responsibility to make the decision. I'm not saying don't have data to make a decision. What I am saying though, is that a lot of times, you know, from the top down, it's, it's easy for you to feel comforted that like, okay, I can trust my people because the data, you know, plays this out. You know, that to me, I, I don't ascribe to that type of uh, management. I don't believe in that. I think that um, what I like to do is I want to trust people. I want people to have the responsibility. As long as we agree on uh, this is what we're trying to achieve, this is what's going to drive the most value, and we agree on how we're going to keep track of whether or not this is progressing towards that, I'm good. I'm good. I trust you. You, I have to trust you. And you know, if, if you can't, if you don't trust yourself on this and you need to gather the data to do that, something like that will slow you down. Right. And, and some people like they, they need, they need that experiential time in, you know, trying things, looking at the data, seeing if it bears out. Um, but really great product people have this, have this gut sense, this kind of intuition, um, they have, you know, a North star in terms of, I know this will drive value. I've talked to users uh, I've seen user tests. Um, I, you know, maybe maybe they have based it on data, um, but I want to give them that opportunity. I had a product manager ask me, um, well, you know, if if you don't emphasize data, how do I win the argument? And I was like, you've already won the argument. Like, there is no argument. You tell me what you want to build. And then like, you better be damn sure that this is what you want to build. And this is going to, this is going to achieve the results. And if you feel that way, I will, I will support you and back you. And I think it's like trusting people versus trusting an argument. Right. I think we have a lot of cultures that are like, I trust the argument with the data that you've supported rather than I trust you to make a decision. Right. And you know, and when you feel that trust, I've felt that trust in the past. When you feel that trust, you probably will go look for data. <laughs> you probably will go look for everything you need to know to make right. sure this is the right path. But when it's when it when it's about trying to prove something, um, you know, it, it, there's this different level of desire for you to find out if this is the right thing to do. And so I think you know, and and don't get me wrong, like data data it can be a huge source of finding anomalies. Right? Data can be a huge source of customer insights. Um, and it depends where you're at in an organization. Some things like, you know, you already have an established business. There's a lot more to lose in terms of changing big things. And, you know, you want to be sure that if you change this thing, it's not going to cause the company to lose millions of dollars because you had this random idea. Right. And so like there's different, but really it comes down to like, if you feel responsibility for the product, um, data gets set in the right place, in my opinion. It is a tool. It is not a taskmaster. Awesome, man. That's, I think you said it perfectly. One thing I wanted to ask you about is growth, career growth, like how you continue to, or whether or not you continue to develop, you know, yourself and your skills as a, as a, as a, individual. I think there's this sense maybe that, you know, because you're a CPO, because you're at the top of the top of the food chain, you made it. So you don't need to, you know, continue to get better and improve and 
but you know, anyone I talk to that's at that level, it's, it's almost the opposite. They're the people that are learning and growing the most. So I'm curious, you know, what's the case for you? What are your thoughts on, on improvement on growth? Yeah. I mean, I, that's like exactly what came to my head was that, you know, now that I'm, I'm here, <laughs> I actually feel more responsibility and more, you know, challenge to improve. And, and that really comes from, you know, I have a team that I care about, like, I want them all to reach the same level. And, you know, when I was early in my career in management, um, I remember giving someone some, some advice about how to deal with a product manager. And it was like, it was specific to my personality and how I would tell that person to, you know, I've, you know, Hey, I've got this space. You don't need to worry about it. And I, I said it in a very blunt and um, probably not the kindest way. Uh, it wasn't mean, it was a little tongue in cheek, but that's just my personality. And so I told this individual to talk to this product manager and say it this way. And luckily she did not listen to my advice because, you know, coming from her, it would have sent a totally different signal um, and so what I've realized since then is that, you know, there are many different ways to handle situations, to grow. And really what it comes down to is if you find the right principle, then people can apply it in their own, you know, using their own personality and their own techniques. And so I've been spending a lot of time digging into like, what are, what are the core principles that I need to improve on? What are the things that like, I need to polish those up and and make them better. And one of the things I've been really trying to work on is how do I give responsibility and provide accountability? Those Mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard to do that in an organization that's growing because, you know, the process is evolving. You're adding team members, you're changing, you know, business lines and there's just, there's so much in flux. And so you've got to have a very fluid method of doing it. Um, but at the same time, it's got to be consistent and uh, dependable. And so um, that, you know, I used to think of that slightly, you know, two years ago, three years ago, I'd kind of like consider that and like, oh, how do we, how do we do that? Uh, but now I think about it constantly. I'm like, okay, down to minor things. Like if I express it this way, how will people take that? If I say these certain words, you know, and and I'm not trying to be a perfectionist. It's just more about like, I do consider all pieces of, sorry, my phone is, somebody's what's going on. It's an Amber alert. Something. Um, Maybe I should just turn it off. That was crazy. Um, Anyways, um, I think like you start to get into the finer details of, of these bigger kind of principles, the, you know, the further you go in your career in management. So that's kind of where I'm at. One strategy that's been really effective for me in terms of growth has been focusing on strengths, really getting an understanding of my strengths and weaknesses, and then figuring out how I can better leverage strengths. I'm curious if you have a similar strategy or if you've done things differently, I guess my question is, you know, you talked about figuring out what you need to improve and then going and improving on those things. A lot of people I talk to, they, uh, they want somebody else to tell them what to improve. They're like, tell me what I'm doing wrong. And then you, you can tell them what they're doing wrong. 
And then they're like, yeah, but which one of those things should I do that's going to make sure that I get a promotion or am X more performant? So how do you decide what to improve? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that is a fantastic question. I, I totally ascribe to the strengths-based management. I've, I've had managers that have managed me this way. I've had managers that started out managing me one way and then shifted to the strength-based management because I, I just, I am pretty blunt about, look, this is not my strength. I'm not, you know, my, it's that authenticity thing where it's like, look, this is, I'm never going to be good at this. And I, I just am not going to try. If you want me to give an effort towards it, I will, but you know, I've spent this many years getting to this point and I can use my strength to kind of counteract what's going on here. But if you're going to tell me to do something that's a weakness of mine, you're never going to be satisfied. And so eventually this manager shifted direction and, and uh, I loved it. I loved it. It was just like, you know, he, he spent time figuring out how within my strengths I could counteract this problem that may have been arising from a weakness that I had. And I think that's a revelation for a lot of people, by the way, just that you've come as far as you have and you still haven't fixed certain weaknesses. Like, I think there's this mentality where it's like, you know, I would get to the next level or I'd get an offer from the company that I want to work at. If I could just fix this one weakness about myself, if I could just, if I could be a little bit, you know, a bit, be a better presenter, a little bit more assertive in the meetings. I'll be totally transparent. Um, I'm terrible at email. I am so terrible. I mean, I remember at Redfin also being called ghost leader because like I was not good at communication. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it, it is, it has been really hard. And, you know, I was at Amazon and that was the hardest thing for me. I hated writing emails and, and there was a very strong email culture there. And, yeah, they you know, write I, everything. Yeah. And, and yeah. And that's the other thing is everything. Was Literally written. you show up to a meeting and the first 30 minutes is reading a document. Exactly. And the first time I was there, I trained as a PM. I was working as a designer. And then I asked if I could also PM the project I was working on. So they trained me as this. And we did this whole working backwards doc. And, um, you know, we had to write a press release for our product. And um, (laughs) I remember thinking, okay, um, maybe I just want to go back to designing. uh, Because, you know, that was really hard for me. I could not and I could never figure out quite why. I actually dropped out of college. I was writing. I was writing a paper with a professor of mine. We were co-writing it, and I was doing it for credit um, in a in a college course as well. So I was like writing this paper. I was taking this other college course to to teach me about this philosophy of this one philosopher, so that I could con- it, that those ideas would contribute to my paper. And the the uh, final for the paper or for that that class about that philosopher was a paper. So I talked to the professor and I said, hey, look, I'm co-writing this paper with this other professor. Can we use that paper as my final for this class? He said, yeah, absolutely. So I was like, great. So I went to working on that. I, you know, I was working on it. I was finishing up. I got it done and I turned it in and he told me I failed without even reading. Mm. I was like, what? (laughs) You didn't even read it. He said, yeah, but you didn't do my process. You didn't, you didn't like turn in the rough draft and the this and the that. And I was like, dude, I don't want to jump through your hoops. Anyways, so writing has always been this like trigger for me. And it's been hard for me through the years. And I, I think that's why I gravitated toward design early in my career. 
because you know I was starting companies and I had to decide do I want to do design or do I want to do the PM track and um, yeah. I really I don't know if I actually made the decision I just the work output of design made more sense to me well I I never got better at that I've never I've I still suck at emails and I've like <laughs> I tried when I was at Redfin to write more emails and I just could not bring myself to do it. And I felt really guilty about that until um, when I, before I interviewed at Homie, uh, I found out that I'm dyslexic. And that was a huge, huge revelation. I suddenly, it just all came together. Like, no wonder I hate writing emails. I mean, I would sit there and retype the same sentence over and over because I'd read it and I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I'd read it again and I'd be like, wait, that makes absolutely no sense. What the heck was I thinking? Like putting words in different places. And I realized it just was like such a burden on me to write it. And I just was trying to avoid it as much as possible. And so, so anyways, you know, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, how did you get to be CPO after being a designer? And part of it is I just, I drew pictures instead of drawing or writing words, right? That was, Mm -hmm. that was basically how I got through and, you know, I've found that the visual communication is actually more powerful as long as uh, you can kind of set up standards around saying, hey, look, this is a weakness of mine. Uh, I'm going to draw things instead. And so luckily at Redfin, um, our VP of product really pushed on uh, making it so that people didn't have to always submit a doc that like that pictures could be just as powerful as words in terms of convincing execs for ideas. And so I really appreciated that. And that was very helpful to me. Yeah. It seems like, uh, it's, it's like a pretty big deal that, you know, you've been able to achieve the success that you have and still have weaknesses. I, you know, I think like the, the naive thought is, well, I need to remove all of my weaknesses and then I'll climb the ladder. Then I'll get to this high level. But it sounds like there's some nuance in your in your answer here, which is the company that you work at needs to value the the things that you are good at. And there needs to be space for you to 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 not be perfect at the the thing that you're weak at. You know, you talked about the VP of product at Redfin allowing you to, to create designs rather than write emails to be persuasive. Um, so it, it, yeah. there needs to be some space for it, obviously, too. Yeah, and I think, you know, this goes back, it's kind of funny when we go back to the very beginning, this goes back to that authenticity piece. Um, I think if you're authentic with people and you're, you're very straightforward about this is, you know, look, this is not a strength of mine. Um, if you want me to you know, to try to work on my weaknesses, I will. But, you know, I think you have to be proactive, especially if you work in a company that doesn't think this way. I think you have to be proactive about saying, I I totally understand this is a weakness of mine. Um, Here are some ways I think I can offset it. And you can basically provide, you know, proactively provide uh, opportunities within your strengths to overcome those weaknesses. And, um, you know, that's, it's definitely, I, you asked something in the question about, uh, oh, you mentioned how people are always asking, hey, like, what's, what can I work on? You know, and it's funny, because I've been getting that question a lot of like, hey, you know, and I think people are totally way more open than, than we think, especially as managers to receiving feedback, like they want to hear 
they want to hear constructive feedback. They want to be told, oh, I didn't like the way that you did this. You should do this. <laughs> but like, there's a ton of studies on this that uh, this type of feedback is is usually a projection. It's like, I think it's something like 60 to 80% of feedback is a projection. Uh, and so what, what value is it, you know, if I'm giving you feedback, that's really just projecting who I am. There's, there's not much value there versus in my coaching training, Chris, Yeah, they, they have us give feedback on the other coaches. Like we listen to all of their conversations and we have to give them feedback at the end and they tricked us. So what they did is they had us give us all, give all these feedback, all this feedback on three or four different conversations. And then after we wrote it all out, then they said, okay, now I want you to look at this feedback. This is all feedback for you. <laughs> I mean, that's that is perfect, man. That is perfect. We should do we should do three sixty feedback that way, where it's like write about your peers, tell them what they need to improve on, what their strengths are. Now, this is what you need to improve on. This I should do that. I, I'm letting the cat <laughs> out of the bag, but like I am tempted to try this out because I think it's totally true. I think it's totally true, and. You know, I, I think obviously there's times when when people might be out of line or they're missing something, and that you know they need to improve. But I think right. like the, the best managers provide you an opportunity to work within your strengths, and you know people have people have untapped strengths, and sometimes will get caught in a in a vicious cycle of being in a role that requires them to have strengths that they don't have. And it's easy to only assess them on how poorly they're doing in that role. And so I think it's it's really great when you can kind of see that and see if there's a different role based on their strengths uh, and yeah. see if they can get over there. But I think, you know, this, it's a good reminder to me as people, you know, we're coming up on the end of year, people are going to be asking for feedback. I think it's, it's a really great reminder for me to say, hey, look, let's focus on your strengths uh, and let's see how we can, you know, move forward and, and excel based on those things. I think a lot of people, especially early career folks, have no clue what their strengths are. Like they obviously they really haven't had time in the workplace to figure out how that manifests in the workplace. But I think the other reality is, you know, the things that we're really good at are transparent to us. We just assume like everyone's good at those things. And the reality is everyone's not good at those things. Um, I think we just like to think everybody's similar to us when they're not. Um, so I'm curious for you, you know, as you think about the things that have propelled you to the position you're at now, what's, what's, what's been easy for you? Like when you think about being a leader, what's, what's the easy part about being a leader for you? Uh, it's super easy for me to, to ignore, a lot of the noise and focus on what, what matters and what, what I think is the right thing to do that. I don't know how, but I think just in my life, I've developed this ability to just tune everything out and focus on really what's going to make a difference. And, you know, sometimes that's caused problems. Um, but for the most part, it has been it is what has propelled me as far as I've gone because it's it's less about me and what I've done, but it's really about providing value for customers, providing value for those on my team, uh, and really just ignoring all the noise, focusing in, finding that value that I can provide, and doing my very best to provide that value 
in the best format that I can. And I think that plus I'm just, I, I have such an allergy to, you know, any, any feigned or fake emotions or feelings or, or, you know, whatever it may be. I, I, I'm very, very much true to my emotions. And sometimes that's bad. You know, sometimes I'll come to work and I'm like, guys, I, I am fried today. I'm just not going to lie to you. Like I cannot push through. Um, and, but at the same time, like, I think people always know where I'm at and where I stand. Uh, and so I think it's easy for people to, to depend on me that way and depend on the fact that I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to do my best to provide value. And if I'm having an off day, I'm going to tell you. Um, but I think that the kind of authenticity builds trust, man, you know, especially now, you know, I talked to a lot of people that have started jobs post COVID. You know, so they're joining a company, meeting all new people that they've never met in person before. And they work hundred percent remote. Um, and you know, the thing early on when you start a job is building trust with your team, building trust with your manager. And I don't know, it, it feels different now building trust. And, um, I'm curious what you think about building trust post COVID and, and like, does authenticity play a role in building trust for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's the same principles of, of, you know, building trust as it was before, but I think you just have to make more effort to, to find ways to show transparency. Um, you know, it's, it's easy when you have a computer in front of you to feel disconnected from the person. Um, and, and it takes a little bit more time. It takes a lot more off the cuff things. You know, some people on my team get annoyed by this, but we have this product team meeting where we meet for an hour and it's right before lunch. And we almost always go over because I'll, we'll end the meeting. Um, and I'll say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Like, do you guys want to talk about this? Did you disagree? Do you think this is a really bad idea? Just like open format. Tell me what you think. And there's a lot of stuff that comes out. You know, there's a lot of questions that, you know, I didn't anticipate. Uh, there's a lot of concerns or there's a lot of like, you know, praise of like, Oh, I'm really glad we're doing this. Um, and it sounds unstructured. It is. That's exactly what I was going to say. All it's the structure really, people are coming in. What's the agenda, Chris? Exactly. <laughs> and it's funny because we have one person on my team. She always will create a second meeting after like, she'll be like, Oh, we're going over. So she'll create a second meeting just to like, I don't know if she's just trying to mess with me, but, uh, <laughs> it's like Chris overage time or something like that. But, um, but it is, it's, it's creating this unstructured, these unstructured moments and you have to do it within a structured format. Like that's the hardest thing, right? Is how do you have this structured thing where you have to set aside time? You have to, you know, create a, a link, send it out. Um, and I think that the key is, is to allow for things to bleed over. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, I think that's as a manager, I think that's a really great way to do it is to allow for time to, for everyone to talk and come up with ideas. Um, I think it's also, you know, today we did in our product team meeting, we, we've been working really hard on OKRs and driving down on those. And today I just opened it up and I just asked everybody, why, why do you do product? Just, I want to mm-hmm. know why. And so like, 
everyone got to hear everyone's answers and what they care about and why it's important to them. And, you know, it was in a structured meeting, but it was very unstructured in terms of what we were doing. And then I think building trust upwards is equally important, right? Like you've Mm -hmm. got to, you know, you have to build trust with those that you report to. And it's harder because their time is even more structured now. Like their time is booked back to back to back to back. Um, And so getting time in is a challenge. And so one of the things I've been doing is I've just been sending messages. Hey, really love this thing that you talked about or, hey, you know, you're really strong at this thing. I really feel like it fits with our company values. I, I really appreciate working with you. You know, finding ways to basically build that relationship in a positive way and reflect back that person's strengths. That has, I mean, people... I mean, I just like, as a manager, you very, very, very rarely hear feedback. And Mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes to know if you're like, especially on a, on a Google hangout, when you're like presenting something, you can't see everyone's faces. And you're like, man, I, you know, I spent all this time. I hope they don't think I'm an idiot, you know, (laughs) and they probably laugh at my jokes. Am I Michael Scott? Am I not funny? Exactly. That's exactly. Dude, my team, like this person who also makes these meetings, she created a bingo card for (laughs) common phrases (laughs) that I say. (laughs) Oh, man. And I loved it. I I got to, I still got to print it out. I want to put it on my wall, but. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard as a manager to kind of feel like you're making a difference. You know, you're going to a bat a lot of times for things that your team needs. And, you know, a lot of times you'll get feedback on those types of things, but just day to day, sometimes it's just hard. And so like, I try my best just to like, Hey, you're doing a great job. Like, I really love this thing. You have the strengths. You really make it awesome to work here. Um, just going out of your way to do that it builds the relationship so that the next you have this goodwill building and, you know, obviously don't feign it. If you don't think that person's great, don't do it. But, um, but you know, authentically, (laughs) Hey, I think you're great, man. This guy's terrible. Um, now, but if you, if, you know, if you feel that and you're sensing that it's really great to find ways to share that. And I think just doing those things in an unstructured, like it's a, it's still through a structured means, right? Like it's email or Slack or, you know, a message or whatever, but um, you still have to do it outside of the normal meeting time. And you've got to find ways outside of your one-on-one to provide that feedback. Cause you just don't get that. I mean, you would get that if you were sitting next to each other at a desk, right? If you saw them in the office, you'd make a joke with them. You'd say something funny and the two of you would like feel better about your relationship together and like that would that would happen, but now there's not those spontaneous run-ins, and so you kind of have to go out of your way to to provide those goodwill fillings um, through you know these structured methods of email and Slack and all that. I think that's an important point. I think it's a good hack to for people to use to start building trust with their managers. But I think it's like you're providing some insight that maybe folks aren't aware of, which is the higher up you get in an org the less feedback you typically get. Or if you do get feedback, the less like, I don't know what the right word is. True. Like, like filtered. Uh, yeah. The feedback is. Yeah, it is definitely, you know, especially when you start getting multiple levels, like you start, it's really easy to, 
just feel like people are saying things and not, you know, you're not really sure. Cause I remember uh, pretty early on at Redfin, like uh, when I had become a director and <laughs> talking to, you know, there was a layer of management and then designers. So there's a layer of management between me and the designers. And I remember being like, Oh man, like, I, I, I talked to them and they really like this idea and I think it'll work. And, and the manager saying, yeah, but I don't think you realize that you're the director. They're the designer. Like, of course they're going to say that. And I was like, what? I was like, no. It was like one of those moments where like in the, in the movies where like the screen rack focuses and you like suddenly have this realization that like, I've become management. Like I'm now one of them. Like, <laughs> so anyway so <laughs> choking on my own spit here but um but yeah so i think like often you know authentic feedback even if it's like hey you need to work on this that that works as well you know but just having opportunities to hear from uh those folks is it makes it a lot easier to to build trust to have a relationship and maintain that sense of culture yeah i think it shows a concern for for that person's growth, which is providing value outside of just doing your job and doing the work. Like there's a care for, for the individual, which I think has to build a relationship in some way. Yeah. I, you know, and it's, it, it can be tough, you know, especially like just seeing the transition from being director and now being CPO, you know, the, the amount of pressure, and the responsibility, it's tremendous. You know, it's, it's, there, there's just a lot of things to consider. And, you know, we have a, we have a pretty big team. It's still fairly small. Um, but we, you know, we got a good core of, of product managers and designers and there's a, but there's a lot of like context switching that, that I go through. And, you know, sometimes, I'm talking to somebody and I feel like the biggest idiot because two days ago we talked about this very thing, but I've completely forgotten it at this point. And I know I, they're like, Oh, but you said that like, you thought this was a good idea. <laughs> I'm like, okay, tell me what that idea was again, you know? And so it's just really easy to feel like you're missing stuff. And, and I'm just one that like, I'm not going to, I'm I, with my own team. I won't have a poker face, right? Like I'm, I'm just going to be straightforward until you're like, ah, I'm, I forgot. Versus I think like, so I think it's easier for people to, you know, see that and, and be willing to like, tell me it's okay. Don't worry about it. But I think that there's a lot of times you'll have managers that have a really great poker face that makes you think that they've got it all together and it's sort of slightly intimidating, but I guarantee you, you know, they're, they've got their own issues. They're worrying about it. They're worrying about things that, you know, oh, I didn't, I didn't you know, deliver on this thing. Oh, I forgot. I told this person I would do this and I didn't even talk to the other person so we can make this connection happen. So I think I it's can just- vouch for this as a, as a high performing manager, four out of five days of the week, I would go home thinking, did I actually do anything? Do, do I, <laughs> do I actually make a difference here? <laughs> totally. And it's like, it's like, I, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, I think we, we have talked the about some really great things, but I don't know if I did anything. Could I like, would they have just been fine without me? So, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's, it's just good to, 
it's good to keep that in mind when you're you're trying to maintain a you know a remote culture. Um, don't forget about you know bosses are people too. You know, managers are people too. They need help. And it, and if you're a manager, you know, <sighs> heaven help you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> On that path, though, I think a lot of people you know are pretty envious of of your position that are early on in their career. They think, oh, you know, I'd love to be a CPO. I'd love to be a VP of design one day and be able to really have a say, really have an influence over the product. Like that's what I got into product for. I, I wanted to create stuff and, you know, be a Steve Jobs basically. Yeah. And, and I'm curious now that, that you're there and you've built a career to this point, what, 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 what are folks missing? What, what's something that, they're not seeing that you can see now. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I started as a designer, um, it, you know, Apple had designers, Amazon had UX designers. Um, but you know, smaller companies, they were still kind of questioning whether or not it was viable to have a designer. And as a result, you kind of had to like, there were no lines for like what your role was. There were in some companies, but for the most part, it wasn't super clear what you did or what you didn't do versus a product manager. And um, I just didn't let that, let the lines be drawn. I didn't care what the lines were. I just cared about creating insane value. And I was like, look, the way I do it is by drawing pictures. I could write, you know, I didn't like to write, but if I, if you want me to write things, I'll write things, but I'm just faster and better at drawing pictures about what we should do. And like early on, that was okay. Like, no, there wasn't a lot of lines drawn around that. And sometimes it would kind of get you in overlapping trouble and, you know, PMs would feel hurt or their toes stepped on. Um, but now as I've, I've seen like the industry progress and, you know, design has become this really, you know, really thorough and great um, discipline. A lot of, and you have all these schools, you know, they're are teaching it. There's, there's been this definition of your role. And, and I've seen a lot of designers kind of pigeonhole themselves and say, well, you know, this is, I only go to this point. You know, I draw pictures. I don't think beyond this. I don't work beyond this. Um, and it's easy when, you know, a, an industry and a company starts to make those definitions to get stuck in them. But I think that's the difference is I just never let myself get stuck in that. I didn't care. I didn't care who was a product manager. I didn't care who was, you know, VP of whatever. Like I didn't care who was the CEO. If I had a good idea and I was very confident of it, it didn't matter how we got it across. I just wanted to provide value for the customer. That's all I cared about. That's all I care about. I constantly, I'm like, I told, I tell my teams now, look, all I care about number one is is creating insane customer value. Number two, creating insane customer value. Like those are the things I care about. And however you get there, I don't freaking care. Just do that. And so, you know, it's, it's, I would just push people to not be concerned about what your title is, what your role is, what the lines are, any of that. If you're focused hundred percent on creating value, you will naturally just skyrocket through. You will naturally do that because when we provide value to customers, they thank us with their business. And if that's what you're 100% focused on, you'll have an impact on the product. You'll have an impact on the business and people will notice that. They'll promote you. You'll move up. And so 
I think the key is also like if you're wanting to go from design to being a chief product officer, you just there are certain things within product management that you have to consider. You can't just consider the visual side. You also have to consider how do we get this through? What you know, what is blocking us from doing it? Also, like, what does the data tell us? You you have to have some grasp of data. It, it doesn't mean that like data makes every decision, but you need to be able to understand it, pull it, tell, learn from it. What what innovation is it pointing you towards? But also be really really strong with talking to customers and getting directional feedback from them. And if you do those things, it doesn't matter what role you take. People will let you switch between the roles. It's just matters of like when you start to get into higher levels of management, it's less about your executional value of like, oh, I, I draw pictures versus I, I write out docs. It's more about, are you making the right prioritized decisions that are going to drive the most value for the customer? That's all it comes down to. And so you practice it by using your skill set, right? Like your skill set is really your chips into the game. It's like, okay, I have this skill set, whether it's writing, um, writing specs and thinking about, you know, driving the team as a product manager, or whether it's uh, as a as a product designer thinking about mocks and thinking about, you know, drawing these things out. Like whether those are just table stakes. They're just getting you to the table to make a decision about what will drive the most value. And so then as you think about that, as you increase and improve and, and you keep providing value and your product gets better and your business goes up and your impact goes up, um, eventually the the you know individual contributor kind of roles and tasks will go away but what will remain and what is the core is making these decisions these prioritized solid decisions around what is going to drive the most uh, customer value and that's the thing you got to practice over and over and over and over and over again and then eventually you you'll get to a point where you'll look back and you'll say oh look I'm I'm looking at like these type of roles. I'm looking at VP roles. I'm looking at chief mm-hmm. product officer roles because people trust your ability to prioritize the right things and drive customer value. Beautiful, man. Well said. Thank you. there. How can people stay in touch with you? How can they follow you? You know, honestly, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is my space right now. Um, Follow me on there. Slash Christopher Fryer, LinkedIn.com slash yep, Christopher, Christopher Fryer. Fryer. Yep. Yep. PH in the Christopher. Uh, hit me up there. I'm, you know, I accept pretty much every LinkedIn request unless I think they're a vendor trying to sell me something then I usually don't accept. So just don't tell them. Add them first. <laughs> just then if you add them. me and you have some like sales title in your, in your thing, just like send me a message saying, Hey, I heard the podcast. Don't, don't ignore me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for doing this, man. This was fun. Dude, this was really fun, man. I loved it. Thank you.